get a serendipitous moment. You meet someone, you feel like someone just kind of put that person in your path. If they felt there were people in the neighbourhood that they didn't like the look of, they'd enlist our support. I knew that it was going to end badly for them. I mean, it was clear. There was windows smashed, there was cars set on fire. Some people wanted to carry on marching. We wanted to have more of a significant response. It was absolute carnage. I, I can't explain to you how much my heart sank. Oliver Park had always been a tranquil green space in the heart of West Trent. That is, until a year ago. My name is Mark Dowd, and in this special edition of Things Unseen, I'll be going behind the scenes and talking to many of the key players who were part of a fateful Easter weekend. A year on, I can still see around me a few vestiges of the refugee camp that has now been disbanded, remains of an old tent canvas or two, and scorched grass where campfires were lit. And quite unchanged from 12 months ago is the spot where I'm standing now, I'm up on the bandstand from where events took their surprising course on that unforgettable Sunday morning. And at the centre of those dramatic developments was a young man in his late 20s, Charlie Hammond. If I'm honest, I suppose I was a bit of a lost soul, a bit rudderless, do you know what I mean? I mean, I, I've, I've done a lot of travelling, I've been all over the world, and there's any, uh, so many flaming sambucas you can drink and so many bars you can work out before you think uh, I need to give my life a little bit more meaning than that, so uh, I was kind of blushingly groping for something to do. So to that end, I come back and work for the local paper because I've always been excited by the idea of journalism. And in your life, I think... You get a serendipitous moment. You meet someone, you feel like someone just kind of put that person in your path. And through that choice to go back and work in local journalism, I was fortunate enough to meet Carl. And uh, he was an incredible person who had a profound impact on me. What were your first impressions, you know, that very first time that you met him? What kind of a person did he strike you as being? <laughs> it sounds really cheesy, but I found him utterly intoxicating. He brought out the best in me just made me want to be a better person, just made sense of a lot of different things. He kind of talked very calmly and very rationally. Did he strike you as being a very political person? No, I think that probably some of the best public figures often aren't. Had you ever met anybody like him before? Never, never. It's the kind of people that you read about and they're as rare as rocking horse poo. Like, you don't get to meet somebody like that every day. He put all the words in the right order. Charlie Hammond would be drawn into the unfolding events in Oliver Park because of the growing presence of a group of protesters, mostly young people who had set up camp alongside refugee families and the homeless. One of the most dedicated of these was 24-year-old Nat Martindale. I've been in this sort of alternative political scene for a little while. I was part of the Occupy protest in London and I heard about the Oliver Park situation because more and more people were joining and around January I decided to go to do what I could. There was a bunch of us that went and it seemed like the right place to be. There was a march planned for the day before Easter Sunday. Why was the need felt to actually organise that? My major reason and a lot of my fellow organisers was this uh, legislation that was brought in by the government to deport people. People that were living here completely peacefully, contributing to society, not criminals, people with families, people who'd lived here more of their life than they'd lived in the country of their origin. So we organised that march for that day. And there was this element of it being a new season starting. Easter is this time of 
renewal and spring and and it should mean more than just little chicks and chocolate Easter eggs. My name is Joseph Masters and I'm a resident of West Trent. I've been for many years. I'm a local businessman and I'm one of the founder members of the uh, West Trent City Watch. City Watch. To their supporters, a community outfit of law-abiding citizens responding to growing concern about refugee numbers and a breakdown in law and order. To their detractors, City Watch were vigilantes meeting out justice in kangaroo courts and motivated by various shades of xenophobia. By the time of last year's events, their numbers in West Trent had swelled to a reported 800 core members under the leadership of Joseph Masters. He says the authorities welcomed the emergence of the group and their regular patrols in the area of the park. We got very strong signals from the police, senior police officers, that up to a point that was very welcome. Did you actually have formal contacts, links with the police? Uh, I would say not so much formal, informal. I mean, we're all members of the community and business associates and police officers. We meet, play golf together. People know people. It's not a, a huge city, West Trent. If I'd been a member of City Watch in those early weeks and months, I mean, what sort of activities were you getting involved in? Helping people who maybe had had too much to drink to get themselves home, investigating suspicious behaviour and supporting local people's concerns. If they felt that there were people in the neighbourhood that uh, they didn't know, they didn't like necessarily like the look of, they'd maybe enlist our support. What did you think of the emergence of the camp? At Oliver Park? Mm -hmm. We watched that with growing concern, really. Everybody in England has the democratic right to protest and to make their feelings known, whether it be through the ballot box or withdrawing their labour or orderly demonstration. We were nervous that the numbers that were now contained at Oliver Park and with the rumours that there were other groups coming in to inflate those numbers, that things could get out of control and we weren't prepared to allow that to happen, really. But also drawn to Oliver Park was an entirely different group led by Carl Franklin. Franklin had, almost unnoticed over a period of months, attracted a steady group of followers on account of his quietly spoken but direct message of compassion, especially for the plight of newly arrived refugees, a message he had skillfully taken to the airwaves. People who have no homes, some of them don't even have a country anymore. They're not welcome where they were born. So they have no homes and they've made homes for themselves here. So we're going to West Trent to be their guests. I know City Watch don't like them there in the middle of town where everyone can see them, but we're not marching to confront City Watch. This is not about knocking people down. It's about love. This is the kind of urgent, no-nonsense language of practical love and support that had seized the imagination of people like Charlie Hammond, who was now anxious to pin his colours to the mast and join the group. We're not talking about some kind of far-off dystopian future. Like, this is happening now. And Coral spoke in a way that gave me that urgency. I guess there's probably about 30 of us. And a very disparate group as well, you know? Like, yeah, we had one common cause, I suppose, but it was like a Bennett and advert. <laughs> you know, we're a very kind of broad group and we come from all over, but we were kind of united under, under a banner of peace and love and unity. And so the group moved southwards and began to look for somewhere to stay for the night. 
Friday went really, really well. We get there, there was a farmer there called Bob Farley. I don't know if you've spoken to Bob, lovely fella. Like, you know, really, I know this is going to sound horrible because you should never judge a book by his cover, but, you know, he looked like he was going to be sort of a, a card-carrying City Watch member, really. And, again, that's my preconceived notions and that's my hang-ups and that's something that, like, you know, that I'm working every day to address. Nice man, Bob. And I spoke to him, like, you know, honestly and as passionately about what we were trying to achieve and, like, you know, and, and he warmed to our calls and let us stay in the barn. We all had a kickabout, including Bob, and uh, he was a big unit, Bob. You wouldn't have uh, put him down as a footballer, but we all got together, like I say. It was lovely, and uh, like, the kickabout went into the night. I, I, I talk about it like it was some kind of like you know utopian existence and stuff, and of course it wasn't, but it was as close as I've ever come. Watching from the sidelines was the self-confessed militant, Nat Martindale, who concedes she'd been less than impressed by Franklin's group, its tactics and his message. I'd seen stuff about their marching down to West Trent. I'd been reading updates from Twitter and that kind of stuff. And I, I have to say, I didn't take them very seriously. I thought it sounded quite wishy-washy. So you're a bit sceptical? Oh, completely. I've not been someone who's afraid of violence. I've always been a fighter, you know? And, um, and I've always felt like non-violence is a weak response. To be honest, being on the ground, seeing City Watch and the way they were with the refugees and the camp dwellers, I knew that it was going to end badly for them. I mean, it was clear. Carl Franklin's group itself looked, on the surface, united and focused. But Charlie Hammond was perturbed by the presence of a man who had joined up relatively recently, Dean Midwinter. I think the man's a snake. And I had that feeling about him right away. But the thing is, you know what my problem was with Midwinter? It was tempered by the fact that... Coral liked him. You could tell that Coral liked him. You know when people were just too slick, you know, too polished, the rhetoric was like, you know, the answers were just there. If I ask you a question, you take a moment, don't you, to have a think about what your response is going to be. Midwinter wasn't like that. He never said, uh, or, um, uh, like, it was nothing like that. It felt like he was just practising his lines in a mirror. Charlie Hammond was right. Dean Midwinter was effectively a spy a member of City Watch who had volunteered to infiltrate Carl Franklin's group. I went to see him in West Trent Prison. Morning. Uh, come to see the liaison officer. You've got... Uh... Yeah, you're fine. Just... OK. The idea scared me at first. The idea of going into a group like that and pretending to be part of the group when I didn't agree with what they were doing... I found that very hard, and I've not done anything like that before. But ostensibly, it was an information-seeking exercise. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Joseph said, see what you can do, get information, find out who does what. And it was not to provoke anything, plant anything. The City Watch isn't about that. It's about looking after the city. So if there was something bad going to happen or be planned, my job was to find that out. Joseph Masters saw no conflict with City Watch's strong law and order stance. People working for the security services and the police need to infiltrate and tap phones. They have to get legal permissions to do so they from do. various senior authorities. But here you were sanctioning, effectively spying and being duplicitous on other citizens of the country. Yet well, you, you, you set yourself it. up to be a, a, an agency which is interested in law and order. You I find that a bit surprising. spying and duplicity. I just call it a genuine concern for the well-being of our citizens, really. If you have a, a substantial group of people coming from you don't quite know where 
to do you don't quite know what into an already febrile atmosphere, that gave us great cause for concern. And I wanted to know, we wanted to know, a little bit more about what their objectives were. Yes. And did this um, mission of subterfuge deliver for you? Well, Dean got to know quite a few um, people within the um, Franklin group and uh, was able to give us information as to their um, intentions, their plans, their numbers, yes. It was useful, yes. The Friday night before the planned peace march in Oliver Park, Dean Midwinter was part of Carl Franklin's group, effectively undercover, as they camped overnight in Bob Fairley's barn. Around 9.30pm, the group split up to look for food supplies. Midwinter, now on his own for a short spell, found a chance to call Joseph Masters and arrange an ad hoc meeting. We had a brief meeting at the Red Bull pub and Dean and I decided, well, it was Dean's idea, really, I thought it was rather clever, that he would lead them to a route via an area called um, the Old Brewery Ground, which is a semi-derelict piece of ground where there used to be a brewery building. Um, There are now sort of some derelict buildings there. And uh, my colleagues and I would just uh, encounter them there and try and persuade them that they really shouldn't get involved in what was already a very, as I say, a very kind of febrile and nervous atmosphere. So the plan was to divert them from their chosen route to a place where you'd be waiting for them? A rendezvous point, yes, a rendezvous point. A rendezvous is just like a meeting between friends who both know what's well, happening. I, I hoped we could be friends, and they might well understand our point of view. Dean Midwinter's task was clear. He had to use his powers of persuasion to get Carl Franklin to take this new path towards what City Watch called their rendezvous point. So after you left Joseph Masters in that meeting on the Friday night, what arguments did you deploy to persuade Carl and his people to abandon their plans and go down this very public route and to follow your idea because your plan would have failed miserably if they'd said no and carried on Mm -hmm. as before. What did you say to them? I said I clearly know the city best as a resident of West Trent. I know this route is not the most efficient route and by cutting this corner, it's a path lots of people in the city use. I said lots of people know this route, it's not some secret back street, it's just cutting through the grounds and Carl was happy with that. Charlie Hammond wasn't. It was my contention that we should go a very public way. One, for our own safety, and two, because we're preaching a message of love and tolerance, right? So in keeping with that, I want to reach out to as many people as we possibly can and pray to the message that we're carrying, and if we're doing that in a very public way, then we can get other people to hitch themselves to our wagon in the same way as I was sort of utterly bowled over by that wonderfully tolerant message. But you didn't get your way, did you? No, I, well, no, no, I didn't, because uh, Midwinter, you know, he was saying that, you know, he knows the best way and whatever, and he, and he thought the best way to go was to take us over um, over Copstock Road and then across the footbridge, you know, by the low path. Which was a sort of shortcut. It was a shortcut, yeah. Yeah, it was a shortcut to disaster, as it turned out. Um, but it was one of those things that, at the time, I wasn't stroppy about it or anything like that. I was just like, well, I thought one way, he thought another way, and I thought, well, it's OK, because in the grand scheme of things, it's not really going to matter. By early Saturday morning, Dean Midwinter had got his way. Carl Franklin's group now approached the old brewery ground. It was really quiet 
You know when things are just a little too perfect and you can't put your finger on it? The silence was deafening, if you know what I mean. To get into the old brewery ground, you have to come through a cut in the wire fence. And we just went one by one, like helping one another through, and I held the fence open when everyone sort of climbed through it. And we waited for each other until we were all there. Something happened, which I, to this day, can't explain. The penny was dropping, but by that time, it was far too late. One of the members of Franklin's group spotted one of my colleagues. And he... he freaked out. Franklin's group started to run in all directions, thinking they'd... <laughs> I think they might have thought they'd walked into some kind of ambush, which was uh, absurd, really. And so the City Watch came running out, people just clashed. Some people were just trying to go back the way they came. Others made a break for the opposite corner. People tried to run back through the fence while people were coming through. People were trying to climb the fence. And all the while, these City Watch boys were just streaming out of the outbuildings. Blokes with metal bars, baseball bats. Some of my chaps got a bit overexcited and started to pursue them. I'm afraid there were a few exchanges. Everybody else has legged it, and I don't blame them. And it's just me and Carl, and Carl's just standing his ground. Charlie Hammond came straight at me. I wish I could have stayed. I wish I'd have had that kind of mental strength. I punched Midwinter as hard as I could. And I liked that. Franklin himself had also um, been knocked to the ground and he was injured. We decide we'll take him into one of the outbuildings to rejuvenate him. And then... then we can talk to him more. With Carl Franklin hurt and held captive, Charlie Hammond quickly began to reproach himself for not standing by his friend. It was an act of cowardice. That's the thing that I feel worst about. I left an amazing man behind and then just ran to save my own skin. You're still beating yourself up about How that. How can you not? This is a person, like, probably the most incredible person that I've ever met, and I fled. I put it to you, you could have done more good by just quietly going away and getting the police to turn up. Getting the police to turn up. Why didn't you go to the police? <laughs> you understand that these two people, the lines are so blurred at this point, I don't know where City Watch ends and the police start. One citizen had more confidence in the police. An elderly woman walking her dog was disturbed by what she saw in the old brewery ground and used her phone. Within minutes, Sergeant Ashkan Karimi was on the scene. Me and Officer Whitlock were the, were the first to arrive. We're in a car. At this point, we could see that outside the actual brewery there was a group of people. I could see that there was a, the big group and then there was one other person that wasn't kind of dressed the same. The body language wasn't the same. Didn't really know what was going on. But something wasn't right. That person didn't look like they wanted to be there. From their body language? Yeah. And also, quite simply, what they were wearing. City Watch kind of have a, a dress code, I guess is the best way of putting it, a uniform, in a sense, that they clearly take a lot of pride in. <laughs> and there's one person that kind of stuck out like a sore thumb. Within half an hour, Ashkan Karimi had been joined by his boss, Detective Inspector Francis McLaurin, head of West Trent Operations. She had been delayed as she'd been apparently making last-minute checks on the proposed march route. By the time she was on the scene, the City Watch members had moved inside an outbuilding out of public view. When I arrived, as a senior officer, there was nothing to be seen. Sergeant Creamy hadn't reported any physical violence, any weapons. 
I had to make the decision whether to remain there or to return to where we were expecting trouble. What did Sergeant Karimi want you as a force to do? From Sergeant Karimi, I believe at the time, would have liked us to investigate further. To actually go into that outbuilding? Yes, to go into the building. And you chose not to. Why? There was nothing to be seen, as I said. Well, there there was was a building there with people inside it. Well, I couldn't see any people at all. As far as I know, they could have gone, left the area, gone on somewhere else. Sergeant Karibi says that it was only minutes earlier that he'd seen those people. And so if you believe his account... There are back doors to buildings, there are alleyways running out of buildings. There was no reason for me to absolutely assume that there was... Individuals were still inside that building. Wouldn't take a minute to send three no, officers in there to minute, check absolutely. yourself I'm, and you two others. You think I'm just going to send people in willy-nilly? And of course, it would have taken more than a minute. And I knew that I was needed back down at Oliver Park. You have to make these decisions at the time, and that's the decision I made. It was a decision that Sergeant Karimi was evidently uncomfortable with. I spoke to her in a language that I thought she understood, and made it very clear. Yes, it started to get a little bit heated and things might have got a little bit mixed up. But I was very clear with the threat I felt was in hand. I explained it to her in plain English and she was just not convinced. And whether she was convinced but didn't want to give me the satisfaction of knowing that I'd made a good call the way she is, you could probably hear a bomb going off and I'll tell her a bomb's going off and she'll say she can't hear anything. She's that kind of character. It does sound like there's fairly dubious chemistry between the two of you as individuals. Uh, has this got anything to do with, I think I read in one newspaper account, the fact that fairly early on, after she arrived, she came in and found you doing an impression of her in the office? <laughs> it sounds like a flippant point, but these things can be often quite revealing. Well, let me make something clear. That if you're going to let someone making an impression of you have such a dramatic effect on the way you function and serve your role in the force, then you're too weak to stand in the position you are. OK? Meanwhile, there was the small matter of a big public march just a mile or two away on the outskirts of Oliver Park. Groups were gathering, tension was rising, and at the head of it all was Nat Martindale. Things have been brewing, things have been getting a lot worse for a lot of people and City Watch were getting a lot more confident, a lot more violent. And so when we started this march, I wanted... uh, you know, I, I did want to provoke them in a way. I wanted the police to see that we weren't the troublemakers. I wanted to provoke them into some violence because that's what they were desperate to do and I just wanted them to do it in the wrong place. So I was coming down the Barton Road as part of the march. I guess I was one of the leaders of one of the groups coming down and I saw Carl's group coming towards us from the other side. They'd come in from another turning. It was clear that they'd had some sort of encounter with, I presumed, City Watch. People had a black eye coming up. There were people with scratches and stuff on their faces. And then they, we moved on, and it was after that that I heard there'd been this ambush. It was all really rumours flying around, no-one really knew what was going on, but at that point I thought, this isn't working, we need more of a response. So me and a few other people decided to break off in the main march. And look, at that point, what we wanted to do was just take things up a notch. Taking it up a notch was the intent, 
But Nat Martindale and her demonstration leaders soon realised that events had got horribly out of control. I'm here just south of West Trent Railway Station, where the march has become much more volatile. It's hard to predict what's going to happen. I've seen people break away from the main march. It was absolute carnage. There is no amount of training, no amount of experience, nothing you can read from a book that can prepare you for what we had to go through. It was mental, absolutely mental. You had cars on fire, people being, like, frighteningly violent towards each other. There was this sense that people were just fighting for the sake of fighting. It got out of hand really quickly. There was um, a section of, uh, I think we were on Peep Street, when um, someone threw a brick into a car and then there was some shop window smashed and then some idiots started looting and that was completely, completely beyond what I had envisaged happening. There was windows smashed, there was cars set on fire, various acts of pointless violence, really. The crowd becomes like an animal. And that's what happened. It just spread. You must have feared for your own reputation as a senior officer at that point, somebody that who'd arrived... That was something that I was concerned about at that stage. I was more concerned about the safety of the public. But you're well known as a police officer who's exceptionally good at fronting television and radio interviews and being a good spokesman for the force. Well, but you're here I you think were. that's irrelevant. Well, here you were on the verge of losing control of a very, very toxic situation. But I didn't lose control, did I? We know that. I didn't. Well, looking at the damage that was done that morning for a, a short period... For a very short period. And then we got it back under control. Nat Martindale was taken aback by the spiralling violence. She's in no doubt that the atmosphere that day changed dramatically once the news of the ambush of Carl Franklin's group began to be passed around the crowd of demonstrators. I think it was a really tense situation and I think the rumours of that... That's certainly what sparked us to change our way of doing things that day. Some people wanted to carry on marching. We wanted to have more of a significant response. It was a response. What happened to Carl and his followers, in my view, they were just naive hippies coming down. They didn't know what they were getting into and they were ambushed. There's you, no other word for it. You used to be quite contemptuous of someone who was a, what, a namby-pamby sort of pacifist. Yeah, that's how it felt, yeah. Because you were the tough one. No, I don't think I was the tough one, but I just think I had more of a grip on what the reality was of that situation. At and, that point. and which tactics work? Yeah, they work better than what happened to Carl. An uneasy calm eventually spread through West Trent on the afternoon of that Saturday. Charlie Hammond was still dazed by the events of the morning, but by mid-afternoon, things were to take a further turn. Charlie was still hoping for the best. I was still thinking that he'd be all right. Like, you know, he just had that kind of aura around him that, like, you know, even though I watched him get levelled by that angry mob, I had enough faith in his ability and maybe, arguably, enough faith in human kindness that he might have given him a kick in, but they weren't going to kill him. But then, I suppose, late afternoon, early evening... Another rumour has gone round that a body's been found in uh, St Peter's graveyard by a couple of kids. And I, I can't explain to you how much my heart sank. Everything I say now seems so cheesy or hyperbolic, but 
it, it isn't that way because the knowing was the knew that like you know that I, I felt just a kind of it was like a gut punch to the soul. Like the minute it got said, I was like, that's him. Carl Franklin's dead. I'm Mark Dowd, and in part two of this remarkable story brought to you by Things Unseen, we'll hear witness about Carl Franklin's death from those who were the last to see him alive. And we'll also hear of the extraordinary events that took hold of West Trent the following morning. <laughs>